It's been the law of the land for 48 years, nearly half a century. Women have a constitutional right to abortion. So ruled the United States Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade back in 1973. But this week, the court, with no written opinion, allowed to go into effect a harsh new Texas law that effectively eviscerates Roe v. Wade. The new law bans most abortions after six weeks, before many women even know they're pregnant, it makes no exception for rape or incest, and it deputizes private citizens to file lawsuits against anybody who aids or abets an abortion whether it be a Planned Parenthood clinic, a doctor, a nurse, a counselor, even conceivably an Uber driver who drives a woman to get an abortion. How and why did the Supreme Court let this law stand? And what does it say about the increasingly perilous future of Roe v. Wade? We'll check in with Slate's Dahlia Lithwick, and then we'll talk to Congresswoman Susan Wild, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, who has sharply criticized President Biden's Afghanistan pullout as, quote, egregiously mishandled, a sign of at least some discontent among Democrats on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Well, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So we've all been obsessing over the last few weeks about the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. And um, today we learn that the Taliban-controlled Texas legislature has managed to get into effect a law that um, is clearly the harshest anti-abortion law yet, um, would seem on its face to be completely contrary to the um, to Roe v. Wade, which has been on the books for, as I said, nearly half a century. Uh, and the Supreme Court let it stand. Um, a very perplexing set of circumstances that I don't quite understand. So, Mike, you, I, I, I was like, when you said the Taliban controlled Texas state legislature, I yes. thought, you're going to get in trouble for that. <laughs> I get but, in trouble for most things that I say I on this agree. show, one way or the other. <laughs> But it clearly, in this instance, it does seem like um, pretty far and pretty, you know, beyond where I think most people in the country are about on this issue and beyond what I think a lot of people expected um, would become law. But, but it, it's also a diabolically clever, uh, cleverly written law um, and you know, because, and we'll talk about this with, with Dahlia, uh, but because uh, it deputizes just average citizens and not officials of the state to enforce uh, the law, which makes This is it the Wild West. It's like bounty it hunters. Anybody can go around, you know, from town to town, find somebody who's going to have an abortion and like take them to court. And collect $10,000. <laughs> I think the New York Times or someone, uh, you know, the hypothetical that they brought up is if you're a barista at Starbucks and you overhear uh, a customer talking about, uh, you know, that she's, she's going to get an abortion, you know, you can, you can then sue the provider. What is that person? We, we talk about the government, uh, you know, we don't want the government in, in you know, in our lives and and uh, and in our bodies um, and in our bedroom, but here you have potentially the Starbucks barista, anybody out there. It's sort of like the Stasi, basically, like recruiting recruiting everyone to report on you and sue you for for this. Right, and, and don't forget those bounties, ten thousand bucks for to bring the case. Right. Yeah, I mean, so and 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 just to to refresh your recollection, this bill. 
essentially makes it illegal to have an abortion after six weeks when most most women don't know that they're pregnant, you know, until after six weeks. And it also doesn't contain an exception for um, rape or for health of the mother, though it does have a medical emergency exception. Um, and it, it essentially kind of creates a situation where any woman who seeks the advice of a you know, like a counselor, um, uh, her, her, you know, like a, a friend, her spouse, her mother, um, is, uh, is, is that, that counselor, the mother, the friend is all of a sudden also on the firing line to get sued for having had anything to do with the woman's decision, um, regarding whether or not to get an abortion. Yeah. It is, yeah. um, Really, politically, I think there's going to be a pretty big blowback on this. And um, uh, we'll see how the Supreme Court is going to handle it, because it will, while it let this law go into effect for a lot of very arcane technical reasons, they are going to have to deal with the substance of Roe v. Wade uh, and its future in the upcoming Mississippi case. Um, so uh, that's where, you know, people will be looking, I expect. And then the question is, you know, you got a conservative 6-3 majority, but two of them, Roberts and Kavanaugh, are known to care about the political standing of the court. So we've got an excellent guest to help us walk through it, Dahlia Lithwick. But I should also uh, remind our listeners, we also are going to be talking to Congresswoman Susan Wild, Democrat from Pennsylvania, who has had some pretty sharp things to say about Biden's pullout and the way it was handled from the Taliban in Afghanistan. And Biden gave that speech, nationally televised speech on uh, Tuesday afternoon. He seemed to me to be very angry to be very defensive um, and defiant to his supporters. He was resolute and strong, but I think, um, you know, watching Biden, it seemed to me that the criticism he's gotten on this has stung and he's dug in his heels and, you know, wants to prove to the world that he was right. So let's get to it. now joined by Dahlia Lithwick, the senior legal editor of Slate and a uh, longtime shrewd observer of the Supreme Court. Dahlia, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me back. I, I thought you were going to say longtime shrew, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> I, and I was getting ready for like, I rah, choose but my yes. words carefully. Okay. I think uh, Isakov would be in trouble with uh, his wife if he yeah, said yeah. that. And, and, and many and others. at least half the population in this country. Needless. All right. Look, this is no laughing matter. Um, and, but I wanted to call you, Dahlia, because I'm genuinely confused about this, because the plain reading of the Texas law on its face, banning most abortions after six weeks, is clearly not in conformity with what the Supreme Court ruled in Roe v. Wade about uh, a woman's right to an abortion until viability, which is, what, 24, 20, you know, 24 weeks down the road. So how is it that the Supreme Court, with no written opinion, no arguments, uh, nothing in writing, can let a law that on its face seems unconstitutional to go into effect. Right. That's the question. And you're right to be confused. And I think the simple non-legal answer is the you're correct. The law deliberately on its face nullifies Roe. It nullifies Casey. Uh, the, the longstanding rule is viability. That's somewhere between 22 and 24 weeks. This is six weeks. I should note, probably your listeners know, but that's two weeks after a missed period. Most women do not even know they're pregnant at six weeks. I certainly didn't. And it's the reason that this is happening is because it was designed to be unreviewable. And so by design, the law was constructed so that no federal court 
could make a determination about whether this law undermines Explain Roe. that, because I don't understand. The law is in effect. It was passed. It was signed. How is it that it cannot be challenged? Well, it's very clever. Most states, when states, which they have been falling over themselves to do, pass 15-week bans or eight-week bans or six-week bans, immediately the abortion providers run to the courts and say, this violates Roe. And they run to the courts and they name a state actor in their lawsuit, right? You can name any number of people in the state who are tasked with enforcing the law. The genius, quote unquote, of the Texas SB8 is that there's no state actor to name because the only people who are tasked with enforcing the law are people who are not state actors. So anyone in the country can bring a lawsuit against somebody who either provides an abortion or quote unquote aids or abets an abortion. That's not defined. We don't know what that means. But anyone who forms an intent to aid and abet an abortion is on the hook. But the person who can come after them in a civil suit is anybody but a state actor. And so the normal lawsuit that names the secretary of state or the governor or somebody else who is in charge of Texas doesn't work here because those people all stand back and say, dude, I have nothing to do with this. This is conscripting citizens to do the work of the attorney general. And so there's no attorney general to sue. And the theory is that means you have to go ahead, let the law go into effect. Once Whole Women's Health is sued, then they can run to a court and say, hey, this is unconstitutional. So very just one more quick question on this, and then I'll let my colleagues weigh in. Then why is it that all the reports are today, as we speak, uh, Texas health clinics are stopping performing abortions? Why there's nobody who's going to enforce that and require them to do that? Why don't they continue to provide abortion services, let somebody sue them, and then go to court saying, look, this law is plainly unconstitutional. Well, there's a couple of reasons. Again, part of the genius of the law is that anybody who sues that clinic is entitled to $10,000. That's the sort of bounty part of it right off the bat. They're also entitled, by the way, if they win, to having their legal fees covered. If the defendants win, if the clinic wins, they're not entitled to recover legal fees. So this is kind of a one-way ratchet. So now imagine being sued by 100 people or 1,000 people. And you can be sued, by the way, in any jurisdiction in Texas. You can be forced to drag yourself across the state to defend a lawsuit. And the idea is, I mean, this is the point, again, of the law is to have you spend your life defending these suits. And there's a provision of the law that certainly suggests it not it's not clear that if, as Whole Women's Health, you are tagged under this law and you pay your $10,000 in the legal fees, that the state is also allowed to shut you down entirely. So the question is, if you are an abortion clinic in Texas, why did you stop doing abortions post six weeks at midnight last night? Well, because you're going to spend your life defending against lawsuits. And then your great hope at the end of all this is that you bring a claim to the U.S. Supreme Court and say, but Roe v. Wade, it's the same Supreme Court that is poised to hear a Mississippi case ending Roe v. Wade this term. And so I would not, if I were the lawyer for one of these clinics, say, hey, go ahead, roll the dice. Maybe you'll win. And can I just add, as an additional wrinkle to it, given that you can sue people who aid and abet abortions, they've also you know, really shut down the willingness of women to go to the clinics because unlike a clinic, they don't have a lawyer on call. So a woman who drives her friend to an abortion clinic is all of a sudden potentially facing a $10,000 penalty for aiding and abetting her friend because she drove her to the clinic. So they've attacked the ability of women in Texas to get abortions from two angles, not just the providers, but also literally everyone else who's involved in the decision. 
And can I just add one thing to that? Because I think it's so important. By conscripting everyone in Texas who is offended by the existence of somebody having an intent to help you have an abortion, you're not just talking about the woman who drives you to the clinic. You're talking about high school guidance counselors. You're talking about somebody who has in conversation with their roommate said, hey, you know, let's think about that. You don't even have to have performed the aiding and abetting as long as you in any way know about or were involved in someone's decision. And so you are in some sense, and a lot of the women's groups are saying this today, giving the boyfriend who abused you the tool to sue anyone Anybody who knows that you are thinking about thinking about going to have an abortion. And so the amount of liability is just almost infinite. But also anybody can sue whoever is the alleged abetter. And that's what I wanted to ask you about, because I don't say you're just a Joe Schmo. You're just a person who happens to be anti-abortion. Or maybe you're just someone who sees an opportunity to make a quick 10,000 bucks and you sue the Uber driver or the, you know, whoever, why do you have standing? In what sense does that person who brings the lawsuit, is that person injured in any way? How does that work? Can I give the lawyerly answer and then let Victoria give the polemical answer? I mean, the lawyerly answer (laughs) is there are other statutes that do conscript citizens to be citizen attorney general. Like it seems shocking, right, that you hand this power over to a citizen. But there are environmental statutes. There are other statutes that task citizens with policing violations of the law. So the lawyerly answer is, oh, come on, this isn't that radical because there's the the, the legal regime contemplates certain situations in which even without direct injury, parties can act as citizen AG. Okay, that's my part of it. I would just add that the even more kind of straightforward answer is is that the Texas legislature can allow access to the Texas courts because they say so. It's as simple as that. So this situation is still a little bit fluid, as I understand it, right? Because the law went into effect midnight Wednesday. Wednesday. Wednesday Wednesday morning, because the Supreme Court uh, didn't act. But pro-choice activists um, have filed an emergency petition in the Supreme Court asking the court to weigh in and to essentially pause the law, right? So, and I guess they filed it with Justice Alito because he's the one who handles these kinds of emergency uh, appeals from the Fifth Circuit, where Texas is part of. So, Dahlia, explain what is the likelihood of uh, the Supreme Court to weigh in and how does that work? Is this something that Justice Alito does on his own or is he going to be consulting with the whole court? And what do you expect the court to do? There's a little bit of a two-part answer here as well, Dan. Part of it is explaining what the shadow docket is, which is a kind of phrase that we didn't use to toss around because it didn't... It's uh, the name of my band, by the way. (laughs) Totally. It's the name of every song in my my album, uh, the shadow docket. But we, it didn't, almost was never invoked or used. And it essentially, the shadow docket is a word that has been popularized to mean just these emergency appeals that get brought to the court, often without full briefing, no case on the merits, no big decision has been made below. It's an emergency order and it comes to the court. And, you know, this was almost never done. The court really frowns on the idea of deciding things on an emergency basis without meaningful trial below, without aerating the ideas in a a serious procedural fashion. What we saw in the Trump era was this, I don't know the numbers, this huge, huge exponential rise in shadow docket decisions. And what that meant is think about all those COVID cases that were decided, all the voting rights cases that were decided, uh, a whole bunch of death penalty cases that were decided without any full litigation below, without briefing, without argument. This is a shadow docket case. This is a case that started to go to trial on this incredibly narrow question, not even on the merits of whether this law is unconstitutional under Roe and Casey. We know it's unconstitutional. That question has never been touched. The question is whether a court can hear it, whether a federal court can even hear this, because technically the law was designed so that only a Texas court can hear it and only once a clinic is on the hook. And so this federal court 
court in Texas started to hear this case, started to try to figure out whether folks had standing, who the defendants were, was starting to do that. The Fifth Circuit stopped the trial, literally said, no, we don't even want an expedited trial. You can't even hear this. At that point, the plaintiffs in the case, which are a bunch of clinics and abortion providers, raced to the Supreme Court, again, paradoxically, the Supreme Court that's about to overturn Roe in the Dobbs case. They raced to the Supreme Court and said, stop this, stop this law from going into effect at midnight on Wednesday. And that was the posture. The posture was quite literally, you know, a couple of briefs and a part of a trial. And the Supreme Court, I think, was widely expected to do something about that, to make a decision that, hey, nobody overrules Roe but us, and we sure as hell aren't going to allow Texas to overrule Roe, and we're not going to let them do it in this weird sideways fashion. The court last night at midnight did nothing. So, Dahlia, where were the liberals? Where were the three liberals on the court? Did they? Why didn't they weigh in, at least write something, file something? I, I, I uh, guess my guess objections. is you're going to see a very, very, very very angry dissent from the denial. When there's an order that comes out, you will have the liberals writing, I think, in very, very heated fashion. Well, that does there is... have to be a order coming out? Well, I think that somebody's got to write something. The, cake, the court has granted this now, so presumably we're waiting to hear. And well, they've granted the emergency petition from the. What did they grant? They just they yeah. just didn't do anything. Well, right? they this didn't is all by stay default. It. They didn't stay it, and I think, as I said, most of us expected, or maybe I, I shouldn't speak for most of us, but I can speak for me, at least something, because the court has been inclined, and particularly I would say Brett Kavanaugh, who now becomes this really important player here in a lot of these cases that attempted to force Roe onto the docket before the court was ready to take it. Justice Kavanaugh did some hair splitty, you know, procedural wave his arms around thing to make it go away under this idea that, no, we're going to do this if and when we're ready. My guess is you're going to get something. And also it's worth saying the minute somebody actually brings a, an action against a provider or an aid or an abetter in Texas, then we have a reason for the court to get involved, right? Then that does become the next question for the so court. So there may be nothing until that happens, which could be quite a while. I mean, the court could certainly do, I think, and again, Victoria, correct me if I'm wrong, we're all expecting the court to say something, having asked for briefing, even though it's moot now, this thing has gone into effect. I think there is some expectation that the court will say or do something, but more likely what they'll do now is, I think, wait for, maybe it's best to describe it as a kind of game of chicken, where the court is waiting to see what's going to happen in Texas, and Texas is waiting to see what the court's going to do, and everybody's perfect happy with that state of affairs because it means that Roe has been nullified in Texas. So you you said a couple times now that the expectation or your expectation is they are going to strike down Roe v. Wade in the Mississippi case, which they've already uh, granted cert on. But, you know, there is an alternative narrative that uh, Kavanaugh, who you mentioned, uh, is very much a split the difference guy. He's... Um, has sort of the same judicial temperament as his good friend on the court, uh, then good friend on the Court of Appeals, Merrick Garland, who's not a rabble rouser either. And that, you know, he'll find some way, perhaps with Roberts, to, you know, maybe further restrict Roe v. Wade, but they're not going to overturn it for all the obvious reasons. I've been saying for quite some time that I do not think the court is going to write the sentence Roe v. Wade is overturned. I, it makes no sense. Why would the court be top of the fold A1 news, particularly, you know, in election years? There's no reason to do it. You can just end Roe v. Wade by drip, 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 by a thousand cuts. So I had no expectation, even before Amy Coney Barrett came on the court, that the court would ever do the radical thing of saying out loud what they were doing when they can effectuate the same outcome by a million small ways. Well, what, what would that One of the look reasons like? They, in the Mississippi case, for instance. Well, in the Mississippi case, I think it's just a matter of saying whatever undue burden meant 
coming out of Casey. Now we're just going to define undue burden out of existence. We're not going to ever find something to be an undue burden on a, a woman seeking an abortion. You can do, and by the way, that's, that wouldn't be in keeping with stare decisis, would it? No, but that's the beauty of what I, I just filed a piece saying like, this is the beauty of the shadow docket. And this is the beauty of kind of dancing between the raindrops, like what the justices are doing. They're doing both in plain sight, but amid so much jargon that they can say they're preserving the spirit of Roe, they're preserving the spirit of Casey, while changing the test in ways that make abortion virtually unaccessible to in, in the states that want to do away with abortion. Mississippi, I truly believe, will not be have a, have a clinic at the end of this case. And for the states that have one or two remaining clinics, that will be the outcome. Without ever writing the sentence, Roe v. Wade is overturned. It won't change the viability test, right? I mean, so, I mean, the Texas law won't be upheld. I, I don't think that a six-week viability, I mean, the, the, the Mississippi case is a 15-week viability. Right. And so yeah. that was, you know, that's another way in which the Texas case is so radical because these heartbeat bills are such a far cry from the viability test. Right. So 15 weeks is is the kind of chipping away that you might think would happen, but six weeks is, is even for this court will be will be uh, a bridge too far. I just wanted to go, kind of go back and put a finer point on the shadow docket, just because not just uh, what happened this week, but last week, the Supreme Court made a pretty major decision regarding immigration also on the shadow docket. And so it kind of really speaks to the institution as a whole, a kind of a pretty radical, I mean, it, it, it seems like a pretty significant change in the way the institution as a whole is operating. Uh, is that, I mean, I'm just sort of curious if you if you kind of concur with that. I find it terrifying. I find it absolutely chilling that the institution for which 100% of its legitimacy rests on showing your work and rests on fully fleshing out the arguments, the consequences, the scope of what's happening is deciding case after case after case on these emergency back of the napkin. These orders by design come out at Friday night at five o'clock, by design come out at midnight in a death penalty case. One sentence, two sentences. Uh, the case you're referring to last week was three sentences with, a, with one citation to a case. And this becomes the law. This is the law. And some of those hilarious shadow docket decisions in the COVID case become precedent for the next one and for lower courts. And so it is the opposite, both of fully hearing a case on the merits, hearing both sides, understanding the consequences, and it's the opposite of showing your work. It's neither of those things. And this Texas case is a really, really good example of that. People did not know what to do with the headline. People woke up on Wednesday morning and they were absolutely baffled about whether Roe was quote-unquote overturned or whether Roe Ro was quote-unquote nothinged. And we don't understand what the court didn't do. And so we don't understand what the non-action in the middle of the night wasn't. And that is the opposite of what a Supreme Court ought to be doing. What is the political impact of this? Well, again, I think that we saw it was funny. I thought one of the most interesting things was the Twitter hounding the New York Times and the Washington Post into moving this onto their like A1 pages. It was initially, right, everybody was like, why are you talking about the dogs left behind in Afghanistan when you should be talking about the fact that the second biggest state in the country no longer has abortion? I mean, I think part of the political impact is that we don't know what the media impact is. We haven't figured out what happened and we haven't figured out what's about to happen. And again, by design, the court kind of rope-a-doped everybody into not knowing quite what happened. I think the most interesting political question to me, and we're already seeing the Biden administration saying, well, let's see what the court commission says about, we, we're fiercely going to protect the right to choose, but we're going to wait and see what Biden's commission on restructuring the court says about all this. And it's almost as if, you know, that there's a 
an urgent existential question about what has happened to the federal courts and what whether the federal courts can undermine the other branches of government. And instead of having that conversation, we're talking about the court commission. I may it long live. <laughs> well, I, I don't think anybody was talking about it until you just mentioned it because I'd <laughs> completely forgotten about that. But anyway, I, I, look. I got, uh, hey, Mike, no, no before right, you, I, I got one one question that just occurred to me. I'm just trying to think about the the practicalities of this Texas law and how far they can go in restricting. So, some people will be able to leave, will have the means to leave the state and go, I don't know what, I don't know, New Mexico, uh, you can still get an abortion. I'm not sure where you could go from Texas easily. I mean, the, uh, aver- but the average drive time to get outside of the state is about six it's hours. It's a big state. It is it's a big, a state. big yeah. state. But there are obviously a lot of people who uh, don't have the means and uh, will have a hard time unless they get help. Presumably, if people who are pro-choice uh, and are raising money, I don't know, you, to help people. You mean aiding and abetting? Well, right. But if you're, out of, <laughs> if you're out of state and you send funds to someone who then travels to another state, they can't go after someone who's given money to them who, who's in another state, right? They're not under Texas's jurisdiction. I mean, aren't there ways to get around this? I'm just wondering how far reaching is this law in terms of preventing people from leaving the state to get abortions, for example? I'm just watching Victoria's face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the, the the short answer, Danny, is just because you don't live in Texas doesn't mean that they can't sue you. Because well, yeah, they, but I mean, how can you, I mean... They can sue you in federal court with diversity of jurisdiction, you know? Oh, there you go. I just wanted to yeah. hear you, one of you say <laughs> diversity of jurisdiction. All right, you got your answer. <laughs> but I, I would also right. just, if I could just say one, like, really serious thing, because I think, you know, it's so easy to get in the weeds around this. And part of the the reason that we're all smiling is because this law is so badly and vaguely drafted that nobody even knows what aiding abetting means. Nobody knows really what any of this means. It's just going to be kind of vigilantism from every abortion opponent who wants to go after someone that they think helped someone get an abortion. But I, I do think that we had a natural experiment in Texas in what happened when all but, what, five of the clinics closed when they passed that law that was overturned eventually in Whole Women's Health at the Supreme Court. We knew what happened in Texas when most of the clinics closed, which is that there was a huge uptick in women uh, self-aborting. There was a huge uptick in women buying illegal drugs and and harming themselves, going to Mexico and having unbelievably life-threatening procedures. And so I just, you know, the reality on the ground isn't just that people were sitting in the parking lot at those clinics last night at midnight, like lined up in the parking lot trying to get procedures at the 11th hour. But the, the reality is we saw horrific, horrific human costs for women in the time that those clinics were shuttered earlier in you know, 2013. And it's, it's really chilling to see the clinics have to stop doing their work right now as they sit around and wait for the Supreme Court to decide if they want to decide. This is indeed a serious matter. And um, uh, Dahlia, I want to thank you uh, for joining us and helping us understand it. Well, yeah, it's depressing. It's really depressing. But um, I think now's a really, really good time for people who are trying to figure out how this happened to sort of be really aware that structural court reform, if we don't say those words out loud and think really seriously about changing the courts. Ah, you sneak in expanding the court there at the end. I said well, structural that, court That's a whole reform. other I'm show. Su- I'm right? super yeah, sneaky. Yeah, we'll have you on <laughs> yeah. for that. All right. All <laughs> Thank right. you for having Thanks. me, all Thanks, Thanks Dahlia. Okay, we are now joined by Congresswoman Susan Wild of uh, Pennsylvania. Congresswoman, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Happy to be with you. You uh, no doubt watched the president's forceful defense of the handling of the uh, Afghanistan withdrawal on Tuesday. You have said that the pullout was egregiously mishandled. You heard the president uh, lay out why he has a different view of it. What did you make of the president's speech? Well, I thought he was quite decisive and showed that he has conviction in not only his decision to withdraw us from Afghanistan, a decision that I completely concur with, but also with the methodology. And, you know, I, I think that he he gave the speech that 
that needed to be made yesterday. It outlined an, a lot of detail that people had questions about. I still think that, and, and by the way, I think that the airlift of 124,000 people is nothing short of extraordinary and our troops and our military brass should be very, very proud of this effort. I continue to have some questions for the administration about the early days of the evacuation. And I also, quite frankly, have questions about the last 20 years of war that cost the U.S. trillions of dollars and many lives. So um, when you when you said egregiously mishandled, which obviously got a lot of attention, um, mm -hmm. what specifically were you referring to? And the president addressed the basic issues here. He's saying he had no choice but to do it the way he did it. Did he persuade you you were wrong when you criticized him? I wouldn't say he's persuaded me yet, That's, but I will absolutely be asking questions during our foreign affairs hearings about why we didn't start this process earlier, why we did not have a plan in place to make sure that those SIVs were in place and were able to get the, the holders of those SIVs to the airport in some fashion. Quite honestly, I think that the focus I'm just digressing for a moment here, but I think that the focus of people, mostly Republicans, on the fact that not every single American has been evacuated, I, I would push back on those comments because, first of all, I think it's fewer than 200, and I think it's quite clear that many of those people have made the decision to stay, whether it's because they have family in Afghanistan or what. And it's also pretty clear to me that the administration made many, many attempts to get those folks out of Afghanistan long before this evacuation started. But my comment was primarily directed at what seemed to be, what was, or not seemed to be, a very chaotic start to this mission of evacuation. You know, nobody will forget the sight of that first plane leaving with thousands of Afghans clinging to it, you know, some bodies falling from the plane and that and I understand that it was never going to be a pretty exit, but the beginning stages of this, I think, needed to be handled differently and needed to be in place long before. I also, quite honestly, while I have come to agree that the president was right in establishing the deadline or at least once he established the deadline, sticking to it, I guess is what I want to say. I do have a problem with the fact that a hard and fast deadline was put on this evacuation, but I do believe that once he set that and then I reaffirmed it, that it would have been a mistake for him to yield to pressure from members of Congress to extend it. And just the last thing I'll say is I hope that I'm going to find out that there is a plan already in place to work with our allies and NATO on continuing assistance in terms of evacuating citizens from Afghanistan, which I think is going to be very complicated, but obviously has been turned over to the diplomatic corps at this point. And Congresswoman, we'll definitely want to explore that a little bit more with you. But I just wanted to get back to President Biden's, really the cornerstone of his of his defense was this, this idea that he didn't have a choice. And he, he framed it really as a binary choice between leaving and escalating. And, and the premise of that is that, you know, President Trump had entered into this deal where we would leave by May 1st, the Taliban would hold their fire against U.S. forces. But if we uh, violated that, that deal, uh, then all bets were off and we'd be back in a shooting war with Afghanistan. And, you know, what Biden said was that we would have to send thousands of more troops into Afghanistan to deal with that. Do you accept that rationale? Don't, or do you think that there might have been a third way that would have given us the time and the space needed for a more orderly, less chaotic evacuation? Well, if a third way was the idea of maintaining our level of troops there for some longer period of time, that's the only third way that I can think of, uh, the, you know, the choice, the binary choice of evacuate or leaving or escalating seems to me the third way would be to maintain the troops we had. And the answer is, 
I do believe it was time to leave Afghanistan. I think it was long overdue. I do think that the president was faced with a very difficult decision that was quite frankly put in place by the last administration. But having said that, President Biden himself has said that the buck stops with him as it should with every president. He has also made it crystal clear, and it's one of the things that many people were very favorable about, including me, that he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. So I don't think that the decision to get out is the issue. I do think that that was a good decision. My issue is with the process. So let me ask you one of the one of the criticisms that you made and that a lot of people have about the the exit has been about the treatment of the SIVs and the kind of the desperate scramble to evacuate the many Afghans who were allies and who aided American troops and our allies over the course of the last 20 years. What responsibility does Congress have for the SIV situation? It's the entity that created the program, that imposed a series of requirements that would take many years for most people to be able to comply with. Congress essentially, some people argue, is exactly the entity that laid the groundwork for the backlog and the desperate scramble for those people. And you may be absolutely right about that. I don't know the answer to that. I will tell you that I think that is something that Congress, that and particularly those of us on foreign affairs, absolutely have to look at and and understand. I don't understand why that series of requirements was put in, but I can tell you my understanding is that it occurred during a Republican majority Congress, and I assume that that had something to do with it. But it's absolutely imperative that we fix that law because it, it in the event that there is ever a situation like this in another country or even dealing with people who are still in Afghanistan who need those SIVs we cannot I mean I I heard stories firsthand from people who had been waiting for patiently maybe impatiently and I wouldn't blame them if so for years to get their SIV processed. I heard from my colleagues who served in Afghanistan about their frustrations in that that some of their Afghan allies who worked so closely with them were not able to get processed for their SIVs. So it may very well be the fault of Congress and we need to own that if so. And it's something that I think we're gonna be taking a really serious look at because as far as I'm concerned, we have an obligation of oversight of the administration and our military but we also have an obligation of oversight of ourselves to figure out you know, what went wrong with this, this process. Yesterday, I was at the Philadelphia airport along with three, the three other congresswomen from Pennsylvania. We met some of the refugees. Mostly, we were there for the purpose of walking fr- through the entire process from beginning to end of what happens when the refugees land at Philadelphia. And we met with CBP, we met with TSA, we met with the healthcare sector, all kinds of people, and really walked us all the way through it from beginning to end. By the way, they're they're handling it beautifully in Philadelphia. I can't speak for any other place where this is going to be happening, but having met some of those refugees, and I didn't make any inquiry about what the circumstances were that entitled them to be, you know, evacuated, but the desperation and the relief on their faces just made me that much more aware of all the people who were who are still in Afghanistan and the particularly the people who who worked closely with us those are the ones that i truly hope that we are going to be able to fashion some way to continue to get them out of there although i i'm not terribly optimistic about it Going forward, what exactly do you think, you know, how do you rate the levers of power that the United States does have to influence what's happening in Afghanistan to continue to get people out if and as they want to and or to influence the behavior of the Taliban government regarding the plight of women and other people, you know, journalists who are left in Afghanistan? Well, the U.S. is going to have to be a leader in this. We are not by any means the only ones with power levers. Our allies have them as well. We all know that Afghanistan's economy is based in substantial part on foreign aid. That is... Or or heroin. (laughs) Well, I said in substantial part. Yeah. 
and and I can't speak to that because I don't know that much about their illegal drug drug trade, but I understand that to be the case. So, you know, that in itself, the idea of wielding our financial support for the country as a lever is a little bit concerning because we know who's going to be most impacted by withdrawing that financial aid and it will be the people on the ground. And that's the, that's the dilemma we face every single time we impose economic sanctions. But that is a very big lever. And the people who all too quickly gave up their posts, the Afghan troops, the Afghan government, the president of Afghanistan, who, by the way, in my opinion, should be prosecuted for his removal of millions of dollars from the country. You know, if if things get really bad on the ground because the country is not getting the foreign aid that they have received from us and from our allies, that may cause a resurgence of action by the people of Afghanistan against the Taliban. But you know, they have a really tough road to hoe. The Taliban's hard enough to deal with. ISIS is another whole entity. Congressman, let me just pick up on something you just said. You said uh, uh, former President Ghani should be prosecuted for fleeing the country with huge sums of money. Prosecuted by whom? The, I don't know. The United I mean, States quite, Justice Department? or No, quite, quite honestly, you know, I probably, I, I, that, that's how I feel. I haven't really looked into the uh, ability to do that and how we we or any other entity pursue him. But I think that it is a grievous shame that that happened. I don't think I am speaking out of school here, but I will tell I in fact, I know I'm not because it's been made public before. But then President Ghani met with leaders in Washington in June and was urged to facilitate the evacuation of many, many Afghans, urged by U.S. officials to do so, and pushed back on that and said that that would be terrible optics for the country and that he couldn't support that. And of course, we all know he was the first to flee. Just one more beat on that. Have you gotten information, how much, how he took it, what's become of that, and what's become of him? Only what's been reported in the media. We haven't yet had any kind of formal hearings that would have revealed that information. Well, Uh, you you are on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And what kind of oversight are you going to be conducting about this withdrawal? Are there hearings planned? Uh, There's been public reports about a dissent memo that was sent from the State Department officers in Kabul about the way it was handled. Have you requested access to that dissent memo, asked the State Department to turn it over? Are you going to have other officials testify about what happened? What What are the plans? The answer is there are many, many discussions going on among the foreign affairs members led by Chairman Meeks about what documents we will be asking for, who we will be asking to come testify before us. Obviously, over the course of the last week, we're not about to conduct hearings that we're going to take people away from the work that had to be done in connection with the evacuation. As it was, we had some classified briefings, bipartisan classified briefings that were helpful, often somewhat acrimonious. But and I think that the administration made these people and specifically I'm talking about the secretary of state, the secretary of defense and General Milley. I was frankly quite impressed that they appeared for almost two hours in person before members of Congress. So what what was acrimonious about them? Pretty much. Now you have to understand this was, I don't remember how many days ago, probably 10 days ago now. And it was still at the point where many members of Congress on both sides were calling for the deadline to be extended beyond August 31st. And that was the primary focus of the acrimony. And did you believe or do you believe that given that there are still Americans who have not been able to leave, and at least some of them apparently do want to leave, that the deadline should have been extended, given that the president said quite clearly, we will not pull out all troops until every American who wants to leave has left? 
Well, the president also said, I think, you know, we, you, you, you can only do so much. Um, we heard that there were 19 communications over the course of the last few months to Americans in the country. We heard early on about the difficulty of identifying who the Americans were who were still in the country because not everybody does what they're supposed to do and registers with the embassy in the country or deregisters when they leave. And so, you know, I, I, I think that you can, I, I, it's beyond me how people stay in a country like Afghanistan when they are specifically told by the United States to, to that it's time to get out. Now, I do, we've heard reported, I don't know this firsthand, that some of those people were unable to leave unless they left their Afghan relatives behind. And I have the utmost sympathy for those people. And I think that we have to do everything that we possibly can to continue to work to get them out along with their family members. So, you know, Look, you, I guess the president has learned what every elected official learns, which is don't make promises that you might not be able to keep. And one of them was that we weren't going to pull out all our troops until every last American was gone. And I think in retrospect, that probably should have been a qualified statement. You know, I honestly believe, and I, I'm not in any way minimizing the importance of getting out Americans who want to leave Afghanistan. I think even if they should have left sooner, that we still have an obligation. The State Department has an absolute obligation to everybody, every American around the world. But I think, quite honestly, that there is almost too much emphasis being put on that issue and not enough emphasis being put on the many, many Afghan allies who are still behind. How much has this hurt the president? Well, you know, uh, I, it's it's concerning because he, of all the Democratic candidates running for president last year, he was the one who had clearly the the depth of foreign policy experience. This is his first real test of his foreign policy, and obviously, many people feel that it, it didn't go as well as it should have. Obviously, we are all devastated by the loss of American troops and something like 170,000, oh no, 170, excuse me, Afghans during that explosion last Thursday. But if we step back and take the 30,000 foot view, ending a 20 year war that he promised to end and overseeing an unprecedented airlift operation that brought 124,000 people out of the country in just two weeks, I think ultimately the history books will probably be fairly kind to him. Congresswoman, I want to get back to the oversight hearings for, for a second and just one sort of specific question. You mentioned some of the potential witnesses and cabinet secretaries, uh, secretary of state, Defense Secretary, but one close advisor to President Biden who was central to the policy is uh, his national security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan. Um, and as you probably know, White Houses from both parties have been resistant uh, to allowing White House staff testify uh, before Congress, uh, separation of powers issues, making sure that you know they get the most candid advice uh, as possible. But would you be in favor of Jake Sullivan uh, testifying before your committee? Yes, I would. Um, obviously, as always happens when we have these sensitive issues, there will be some things that I'm sure he will not be willing to testify about in the interest of national security. And that's always a little bit of a challenge for members of Congress. We've we heard it a lot in the last administration. And, you know, you how do you test that out without knowing what it what this what it is that they they aren't telling you? But let me just say this: I don't think it's just members of the current administration that we're looking at. They will be the ones who will lead us, in my view, to ask for additional people to come testify, including military leaders over the last decade. A key point is, how is it that we thought that the Afghan troops and government were capable of standing up to the Taliban once we left? And how could we have gotten that so terribly wrong? I will be very specific on this and tell you that um, one of my colleagues who is in a position to know 
and is on the Intel Committee has made it abundantly clear that in his opinion, there was not an intelligence failure. So I'm not gonna use that word. So then the question is, if we had the intelligence that this would happen, why were the decisions made that were made? So these aren't going to be easy hearings. I am quite certain that we are going to get a lot of pushback. You know, there's been a lot written over the course of the last four years about Congress's ability to for, enforce subpoenas and that kind of thing. I actually have just recently signed on to Ted Lieu's bill, giving Congress some contempt powers in the event of people not complying. I don't remember the name of that bill, but not complying with subpoenas. So it's going to be long, protracted, but it's, let me just emphasize, it doesn't matter how long or protracted these hearings are, they have to be done because, you know, this goes back to why were we there for 20 years? Who benefited from that? How much was the military industrial complex involved? It informs all kinds of issues like future defense bills. The NDAA is being worked on right now, as or I think any day now. Um, I'm not on that committee, but you know, I, I just, we really need a lot of answers about everything that's happened in Afghanistan to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes again and don't ever end up in another endless war. So let me pivot to a non-Afghanistan issue, but one that's of uh, kind of probably increasing importance in your district, as well as pretty much everywhere in the United States right now, which is the Delta wave of COVID. You live in a, or you represent a district that has a vaccination rate that's uh, below the national average um, and that's seeing a, a pretty significant surge in hospitalizations and that has been a lot of fights about mask mandates. Do you feel like people in your district are beginning to take COVID seriously? Is the need for vaccination breaking through? I, I, it, it's hard for me to believe that people would just now be starting to take COVID seriously. But having said that, we are seeing the Delta variant has caused an increase in the number of people getting vaccinated in our district and across the country. I will tell you that I have a weekly phone call every Friday morning with a group of community leaders, including both of our major uh, hospital networks. So every week, I am getting updates on exactly how many people they have hospitalized, how many people they have on ventilators, and most recently, how many children they have hospitalized. Last week, I was told that there was a 26-month-old on a ventilator. If that doesn't make people take this seriously, I don't know what will. So in answer to your question, we are seeing, and I I inform this based on the uh, calls that we have with the health care networks we are seeing a little bit of a movement towards more vaccinations, but not enough, not nearly enough. Do you, would you support a vaccination mandate for businesses within your district? Well, I will tell you what I would support. I would support a vaccination mandate for any entity that is receiving federal funds of any type, which would include hospitals. The president has already entered a mandate going to nursing homes. I think it should be extended to hospitals and other health networks and schools I absolutely would there. I don't know that I, I, first of all, I don't think we can impose a vaccination mandate on private businesses that don't get any kind of federal funding. I think that would be a very difficult to do, if not impossible to do. But I would like to see some, I, I have already stated that I think that anyone that works in a school should be required to be vaccinated, period. And I hope that soon we will be able to lower the age that the vaccinations are uh, of people that the vaccinations are able to be given to. I've said many times that I am grateful that I have two children who are 25 and 28 and that I'm not having to deal with this school issue that everybody's been having to deal with. Last year, it was the inconvenience of learning from home. This year, it's literally being afraid that for your child's health and whether they will contract this virus. You know, last year it was worry that the children would bring it home to an elderly relative. This year it's, is my child going to end up in the ICU on a ventilator if I send him to school? I was going to say, just Congress is is entering the appropriations and budget cycle, which is exactly the time to impose that sort of condition on the receipt of federal funding. 
Is there going to be an effort to do that this fall? I don't know. I, I, I can't speak to that yet because this is something that we are just literally, we should have been talking about it before, I suppose, but I don't think anybody, remember, we all thought we were going to be okay by this, you know, this time of 2021. And instead we're entering a really dangerous or we're already smacked in the middle of a very dangerous phase. So I don't know. I'll, pro- I'll be talking to the chair of appropriations, Rosa DeLauro, later, and um, I'm going to, I'll bring it up with her. This is going to be quite a busy week for a busy month for Congress. You've got to do these um, uh, the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation. And as you know, there's been quite a bit of um, contention and controversy about how that's going to play out. The deal that uh, Speaker Pelosi reached with the moderates was they will have a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill by the end of the month, September 27th. Right. The progressives are saying they will not vote for that unless the broader reconciliation, soft infrastructure, three and a half trillion dollar proposal is on the table and voted on by then. Where are you on this? Will you vote for that, um, the bipartisan bill without seeing the reconciliation package? Or are you with the progressives? You won't vote for either until you they're both well, are on the table. Let me be perfectly clear. I think we are going to have a, at least a really good idea of what the reconciliation bill is going to look like by the time by the 27th, even if it's not ready to vote on yet. The answer is I will vote yes on the bipartisan infrastructure deal on the 27th or whenever it comes up. I think it is critically important to my district. It's critically important to the country. Having said that, I will also While I'm not a member of the Progressive Caucus, I will be pushing for some priorities that are of mine that are in the reconciliation bill, as I know every member of Congress will also be doing. And it's quite honestly going to be up to the speaker once again to work her magic to bring everybody together. Uh, It's often said that we are a big, messy caucus, but we almost always manage to come together at the end. And I'm hopeful that that that's what's going to happen. So you you will vote for the bipartisan bill even if the reconciliation is not completed and you say you have your priorities for the reconciliation but I take it given the deal that Pelosi struck which basically said the House is not going to vote for anything that is not going to pass the Senate, which basically gives Mansion and and Cinema, you know, full control over how big that reconciliation package can be, which suggests it's going to be a lot less than three and a half trillion dollars. Correct? I believe that it will be less than three and a half trillion dollars. Yes. Where do, what do you think it'll be? I don't know what the number will be. <laughs> I quite honestly don't know, and I I don't know what number is too big for Mansion and Cinema and the Senate and what number is too big for you? You know what? I, I, I'm not going to get caught up in the numbers. I'm going to get caught up in the priorities that are in it. For me, it's prescription drug pricing. It's Medicare negotiation of drug prices. I think childcare is critically important. Obviously, broadband is critically important. I don't even know at this point whether that's part of the soft infrastructure or the hard infrastructure. I think everybody- What can you lose? What, what, would, what would you be willing- to take out in order to satisfy everybody? Well, we don't even know what the bill looks like yet. The committees are just, you know, are, are working on it. So I don't know. I can't answer that question yet. Um, if you, you know, I, I think what I think will probably happen. And by the way, we're, we're I, I know I'm not alone, that I'm hearing from all kinds of groups representing all kinds of interests. And by that, I don't mean I don't take corporate PAC money, so I tend to get fewer of those kinds of calls. And I certainly won't be hearing from Big Pharma because I think they know my viewpoint, because since I've made it abundantly clear over the years I've been there. But for instance, I think there will be some accommodation in the amounts on each of the sectors that are so important, the care economy, elder care, child care. Unfortunately, and I'm not singling them out as the ones that should be reduced. I'm just giving them as an example because they come to mind quickly of something that I'm also keenly interested in. The other thing that in answer to, I I think it was your question, Daniel, about what number would I agree? You know, I think what we really have to focus on, and I have been very outspoken with my caucus about this, we need to be pointing out what the pay-fors are 
in the reconciliation bill. If we, and getting back to my personal pet project, Medicare negotiation of drug prices, that's a huge pay for. Bringing down the cost of Medicare by reducing the prices that Medicare pays for prescription drugs can be quantified and we should be looking at that. So, and there, I know that there are other pay fors that are being contemplated. So let's try to look at it that way rather than just getting hung up on what the eventual number is. Because if you do that, then you lose sight of, of those important pay fors I've got one final question for you, and it's the question that I'm most curious about. You represent a district. Uh, you got Allentown and other counties outside Philly, including Chester County, no, which is... I do you, not have Chester You do County. not have Chester County. Chester County is Chrissy Houlihan's district. Okay. I, have, I have all of Lehigh County, all of Northampton County, and lower Monroe County. So you don't have Easttown? I don't have Easttown. <laughs> I wanted to ask you what's the reaction oh, in I the have, Philly exurbs to Easttown, but maybe you can give it to, to me anyway. Chrissy, you'll have to ask Chrissy that one. I have Easton, E-A-S-T-O-N, but not Easttown. I misread that on... Did you did you watch Mayor of Easttown? I did, and I wish there was more. Yeah, well, and I think we can say from this podcast that you don't have a Delco accent. Is that right? <laughs> I'd be surprised if I have a Delco accent because I'm an Air Force brat who grew up all over the world and all over the country. So if I have an accent of any type that you could identify, I'd be surprised. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, accent or not, we want to thank you for joining us on Skullduggery. And um, we will definitely be watching as the House Foreign Affairs Committee delves into the uh, Afghanistan matter. Good. Please do. And thank you so much for having me. 